This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hello all, this is Lynn McPherson. I'm the Program Director of the Online Master of Science Graduate Certificate and PhD in Palliative Care. And I'm very excited to be here with Connie Dolan, who is one of the faculty members in the first and the last course in the PhD, and she teaches in the master's program as well. And we're recording a series of 8,000 people, courtesy of Connie, who are founders, leaders, and futurists in palliative care. I'm very excited with our guest in this particular episode, Dr. Catherine Walker. Welcome, Dr. Walker. How are you today? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Good. So I'm uniquely positioned to introduce Dr. Walker. So if you go back about 17 years, a colleague at the School of Pharmacy asked me, hey, we want to interview a couple of candidates for our ambulatory care PGY2 residency. Would you be willing to interview the candidates? I said, sure, because I'm a team player. So I interviewed the first two. They were fine. Then the, the third candidate walks in. It's this tall, cool blonde. She sits down. We're talking about the ambulatory care residency. Within two minutes, I said to myself, self, no, this is not going to work. I want her for my residency in palliative care. So after going through, and I think I even said that, I said, you know, AM care is cool. Don't get me wrong. I've got a clinic. It's awesome. But you know what you really want to do is palliative care. And she's like, no, 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 no. I really want AM care. So we finished the interview and I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to get her for my residency. Well, as things turned out, I had the opportunity to contact her and say, okay, look, boy, have I got a deal here for you. How about a residency that's mostly palliative care, but you also will get the AM care. So she says, I don't know. Let me call my parents. I said, okay. Calls the parents who live in Maryland, point for me, calls them back and says, okay, I'm going to do it. And I said, well, fair warning, this is kind of a new field. I'm not quite sure where it's going, but I'm jumping in. You want to come with? And she was like, okay, let's do it. Is that a fair assessment, Dr. Walker? I think it's pretty fair. I remember the first thing I said to you when I walked in is I was like, I love your yellow office. And I think right then we knew like, okay, we're, yes. we're going to get along just fine. Right. <laughs> you knew it took me like 10 years to get permission to paint that sucker yellow. <laughs> I knew, I knew the rebel spirits were aligning at that moment. Right yellow <laughs> so fast forward now, Dr. Walker is a palliative care pharmacist, of course, but she's also an assistant vice uh, president of MedStar Health, and she is in charge of all of palliative care for all nine or 10 MedStar hospitals. So, but she still keeps her hand in clinically and sees patients uh, as well in practice. So Dr. Walker, did you make a good decision back uh, 16, 17 years ago, even though you were jumping into the unknown? I would say so. What's interesting, because I remember during the interview and, um, uh, you know, just thinking of in TED Talk style, when do failures you know, serve you well. And that was a good example of thinking that my life's passion was primary care because I really love the patient centered aspect. And for clinical people that aren't familiar, clinical pharmacists, once you get your PharmD, you know, you can work retail at like a Target, Walmart, Giant pharmacy and um, in a hospital staffing the pharmacy. But in order to be a clinical pharmacist, you have to do residency training. Um, and Although all the different fields, primary care was one that I had exposed to that could really 
connect with patients and really get to know them and build relationships and have that continuity of care. Little did I know, I mean, that's palliative and spades. I just hadn't been exposed to it. Um, and so I remember being interviewed with you and then thinking, she's trying to trick me because she's asking me if I really want to do her residency, but I'm interviewing for another one. So I can't say yes, but her sounds really cool. Um, but, and I wasn't chosen for that residency position because someone else ahead of me had more experience. Um, and although I was disappointed from that, then when you called and thinking, wow, this field uh, it was such a much better alignment. So I tell a lot of people coming through school, I wish I'd someone had told me um, to pay closer attention to how much your field aligns with your personality and your interests. Because I think I would have poked out both my eyes had I been in primary care because palliative is just one of those fields where you can be creative. And I feel like um, I love living on the edge of guidelines and that's where palliative is, where if it's cookbook and you know blood pressure management and J and C, I don't know, 12 or whatever they're on, I'm just kidding. Um, that you know, if you're managing things that are 20 years down the line, that wasn't where I wanted to be. I really like, I guess I'm an immediate gratification person. I'm like, I wanna manage a symptom, know it's working, adjust it. Um, it was much more exciting and creative. We're, not all pharmacists can live on the edge like that. So true. That's true. Yeah. Maybe you can share with our listeners the journey of your first job. When I did tell you ahead of time, there's a chance you are not going to get a job for what you just trained in as a palliative care pharmacist. So you took a job as an oncology pharmacist. So how did you go from an oncology pharmacist to running the whole show? Yeah, I, I think palliative care has come a long way since 2003 in this fact, but um, I wanted to stay in the area because of my family, who you mentioned before, but um, when the hospitals around, like, at that point, no one was hiring for palliative care specifically, especially pharmacists that was like not on the radar for thinking hospitals, not that, you know, they all need it. They just didn't know they needed it. Um, so our, this community hospital in our area that was a MedStar hospital at the time had an option for an opening for an oncology clinical pharmacist. Interestingly, and I think this is where those things, you know, stars just align, but that hospital also was the landing place, newly new landing place for a physician that trained with Dr. McPherson at the Harvard program. Um, and you knew that. So there was a connection thinking he just trained in palliative care. He's probably going to be doing something in palliative care. And they were honestly too small to really attract an oncology specialist pharmacist. So it was a really good feat, but I think a lot of an creating a field or in a newly forming field was being able to really sell your skill set. And when I interviewed, I remember um, with the clinical coordinator there, I said, you know, thanks so much for the interview itinerary, but can I add someone to my interview? Could I interview with this physician that you don't know yet because he just started? And I remember her saying, I don't ever remember anyone asking to interview with more people, but I guess I can find him and put him on your list. And him and I, when we met, I was like, if you're going to do something in palliative that I want to come here and help you do that. Um, and then to the pharmacist um, who was looking for an oncology pharmacist, I said, look, most of oncology is symptom management and supportive care for a pharmacy part of it. I'm like, I can do that in my sleep. I trained under Lynn McPherson. She, of course, knew Lynn. But, um, but I was like, I can do all the symptom management, supportive care, the chemo stuff, med safety. I'll learn that. I'll do whatever you need me to do to learn it. Um, but you also are a specialty hospital and you have a lot of pain, unique pain needs with your specialty surgeries that I bet opioids are an issue that I could help you with as well. So it was really like figuring out what the hospital was about and then aligning because palliative is front and center at any hospital, but 
really specifically making it pertinent to them. Um, I think I just talked her into it because I was not qualified for that position. And that's for sure. <laughs> um, so. And that position, I spent those two weeks at Harvard with Connie Dolan. So talk about a small world. <laughs> small world. That is. And then I think that when, when I landed there, um, the hard thing was proving that, you know, it took years to prove to the hospital as many people and has been highlighted so nicely by CAPSI, but many people in different health systems have done. Um, I think then the challenge was doing the job that I was hired to do. And then on top of that, doing the job that I think I should be doing, which is palliative care. So it was very much a grassroots in endeavor, um, spreading the word by teaching the medical residents. When you, when you run out of options for a patient, you call us and we'll help you. And just showing up and it meant a lot of long hours because I would do my regular job and then stay and see all the palliative patients. Um, but I think that's, you know, it's been fruitful and it was at a time in my life that I could do that. Mm -hmm. So, so talk to us about the leadership angle. So how did you go from creating your own personal space as a palliative care provider to, you know, like I'm always amazed when we chat and you say, well, I just talked to the hospital president and I just got three positions approved for palliative care. I'm like, how are you doing this? So how do you pull that off? Well, you know, I don't know. I, I learned from the best. <laughs> um, which which Peter law, Peter's law is it where it's like, if you hear no, that, right? <laughs> start one level higher. <laughs> um, I mean, I think um, it's just being able to, I think the thing that I've learned for that piece of how it's grown is that you know, I've, I've been in MedStar since 2003. So I think the lunch, the, having the relationships and just being very diligent about trying to craft a reputation that you can kind of deliver on what you, you know, the one ask, so then you can ask for more um, and not being afraid to ask. I think sometimes that's where, even from the beginning of asking to interview with someone, it's just like, well, I mean, they can always say no, and I'm not going to get my feelings hurt because I'm probably going to recraft my argument and come back again. Um, so I don't know, maybe being the oldest child helped me prep for that. I don't know, and a family of three girls, but um, but I think just the persistence of being able to not take it personally when people say no the first time and then just recrafting the argument. Because anytime I feel like someone says no to an ask that we have, I feel like it's a needs assessment. So if they say no, it's like, interesting. Like, why, why are you saying no? What's influencing that decision? Um, because then that gives me all the information I need to go back and collect data and recraft it and then bring back a stronger argument um, at the next, next fiscal quarter. So I always end every meeting with a no that's saying like, okay, I'll see you again soon. Like, I'll be, we'll be back. <laughs> um, One so. of my um, persons that I worked with, actually, uh, there was a great quote that said, no is the beginning of the conversation. So true. So, true. so I think that, you know, that's the other part about leadership that we, we don't back down um, and we try to figure out some of those things. And I, I also would say, um, Kat, that, you know, one of the things that I hear, I know that you and Lynn know each other really well, but I think, um, you know, there's always that part where we, if we're a leader, we want to challenge. We don't want to do something we're really comfortable with because then we don't grow. And, and that's the difference sometimes of when people can sense if they're ready for leaders 
uh, leadership. I kind of think of some people who are like, you know, I don't see myself as a leader, but I want to do X, Y, and Z. And it's sort of interesting of what their mirror is saying, like if it's saying, you know, you're not a leader or I don't know what it is, but I'm like, everything you're talking about is about leadership and being ready to step in and having people around you who are going to help you succeed. And sometimes we don't have as many people, but, but just also knowing that sense of like, you were going to, you were going to move towards something. And I think that that's something that we want our students to understand that a, in this field, there's a lot to step into because the field is so wide and B, um, sometimes it's not what you expect. And that leadership opportunity presents itself with not sort of a signpost that says, here's your leadership opportunity, but yeah. rather, oh, this is an interesting thing. And you started and then this whole other pathway gets opened up. Well, I mean, and think about back in 2003, when I started, um, one, there wasn't even a well-known from clinical pharmacist position on palliative care teams did not exist, much less the fact that a clinical pharmacist would be leading a health system palliative care team was unfathomable. Like, I mean, it just wouldn't even cross my mind that that was an option. Um, so to your point, I think it's not um, always a perfectly planned out path and no one's gonna ask you to do it because no one would have thought to ask a pharmacist, I think for some of these roles. Um, and I think one of my favorite things of our team's dynamic and also um, just being in the world of kind of the business side of palliative over the years is when people say, wait, what's your background again? Um, and I, I love that when the CFO asks, because I can talk numbers with them. And I'm like, well, pharmacists work, we like numbers, we live in numbers. Um, so it makes sense that, you know, we can kind of handle financial information in a way. It's, it's very similar to dosing opioids. <laughs> um, or research studies or whatnot. So um, I just think that that's what uh, has been an important lesson. Uh, similarly, on our palliative care teams, you know, we round and our teams are so um, cross-trained and transdisciplinary that often after we round, the, any learners that are with us are like, wait a second, what does everybody do again? Because, you know, the social worker was talking about vent settings. The pharmacist was talking about spiritual distress. Like, I, I forget what everybody does again. That, like, that's success, right? Is when we can kind of learn all of these skills. And I feel like it feels, being in a leadership position has felt very comfortable because of being a clinician and cross-training a lot of the disciplines. So I feel like the same way we respect our other disciplines on our clinical teams and we learn what a chaplain does, we learn what a social worker does. And that's been so valuable being a clinician in a leadership position where you got to know what the CFO struggles with. You got to know what the COO struggles with and learn a little bit about their world so that you can meet their needs. And then they'll say yes, instead of no. <laughs> um, but that's been interesting to me is to say, and I think Dr. Kearney, my partner taught was a good um, teacher in this realm is that all the people that we're meeting with are not big, scary people. And I think early in my career, I was very intimidated going into the boardrooms and the C-suites and um, pitching a lot of what we're doing and reviewing our plans. But, you know, he's like, remember the CFOs are, are in healthcare for a reason, you know? And his line was always like, they could be working at Bank of America for Bank of America, um, but they're not. Like they're all here with a mission similar to us. Um, and I found that to be, thankfully, I found that to be very true. So I think that, you know, not taking those personally and then, you know, assuming that the best intentions of everyone you're working with to get to know them has been really big. Kat, you also talk about something that I think is so important and, and just in how you've spoken, um, just talks about the evolution of the field, right? That you are talking about growing a team 
and understand the business aspects, right? And if you think about it, there were many people who said, oh, I'm going to do this and because I love to do it, it'll be fine and everybody will you know, be drawn to it and they'll support me forever, right? But we know that you have to have some sort of business plan um, and you need to know some of the language, not that you're gonna get your MBA, but you have to be able to relate to them. And so you figured out the language and some of the principles that you needed to be able to work in that space, knowing that they were the business experts, but you had to work alongside them. And then the same way, translate for your team, here's the clinical part, but you need to understand this business part that I'm working with. Because, you know, with all programs now, if you don't know who's supporting you, you're going to be on the chopping block. And, um, if you don't understand the concepts, then you can't explain it, then that's even another issue. But I also think in terms of the sophistication, Lynn and I have talked to people who you know, were doing uh, hospice when it was volunteer, they did it after their regular job, which just kind of astounds me. But then I think, okay, well, they didn't have the regulations, right? Because they were doing it volunteer and if you do something volunteer, you can do it however you want. But I think the issue that it's, it has to be built on passion, but it cannot, any longer, no problem, no program can ever be passion alone. It has to have the clinical, it has to have the administration, it has to have the IT, it has to have the quality. Um, and you've kind of illustrated that just in your career of kind of learning into that. So I just think that that's really powerful for our students to hear the sophistication and the different ways that they'll have to translate and know who you're working with to be able to understand what language you're speaking at any one time. Yeah, Walker great. teaches in our master's program too, in the leadership pathway, by the way. Mm -hmm. So I guess I would ask, if you look at our students in our PhD program, one of our terminal performance objectives is they be leaders. Now they may or may not end up like you and be leaders on a system level, but what advice do you have for our students as they move forward either to assume a lead, an actual leadership position such as you have, or minimally standing in their own power as a leader? What advice do you have? That's a good question. I mean, I think many people, I think that um, the, I think the biggest thing is um, that I feel like, and it's, I'm not taking any credit for it for myself because I've stolen all of it from other people that have mentored me, but um, one big thing is that I felt like, um, to a, you know, my primary, I would say mentor. So you, Dr. McPherson and Dr. Kearney, the phys my physician mentor, um, I would say have very much illustrated the importance of staying in clinical practice. So I would say a lot of people, and I, and I hear this around our system is like, you know, you're buying down your clinical time so that you can do non-clinical things and leadership opportunities and research and all of that. Um, but I would say just to be careful, because I think that you always want to keep you know, the patients within your realm, um, because that really anchors you in everything you're doing. And it still makes, it also makes you very relevant in the boardroom. Um, you know, I think a lot of the conversations we have that, you know, we do cross coverage on our health system across seven hospitals and to be able to say to the vice president at Southern Maryland hospital, like, oh, the patient I saw at your hospital two weeks ago was dealing with this, um, just really makes, um, it's just more real and it keeps you in touch with some of the struggles that are going on um, and changes. So I would say staying within, don't lose all of your clinical practice, no matter how much leadership you pursue is one um, piece of it. And then I think the other big principle that I feel like I'm always keeping myself in check about is 
um, just that transdisciplinary nature of where you came from as a clinician and, you know, what, am, what holes am I missing? What gaps am I missing to kind of, cause I feel like my customer has changed a little bit because instead of caring for patients, I mean, I, I do care for patients on a population level. Now, I think we have, you know, almost 8,000 patients that we'll be serving this year at MedStar, which is awesome. Considering our first year, we saw 50. Um, so I feel like I'm responsible for patients on maybe a more of a global level. But I feel like really my, my customer day-to-day -day is really our teams. And I think as a leader, really having that servant mentality where you're kind of, you're not there to lead people, but to serve them and help them be their best and remove barriers for them um, and be able to use system level resources and influence to really clear the path for their good, all the good ideas that are coming from the teams. Um, so that's been one thing that I think um, our vice president of medicine at MedStar told me is I was like, you know, what do you, when we first started working at the system level, we were like, what do you need from us? And he's like, no, 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 that's backwards. I'm the leader. I'm here to serve you. Like, what do you tell me what you need? And my job is to clear the path for you. And that really helped me set my course. I think um, as a reminder to say, people aren't looking at me to lead, but to like help coordinate and remove barriers for them. And, and my job is to serve our teams really. So it feels very similar to being a clinician. A lot of times, I think when you're you're showing up and like serving the patients. So yeah. So what about individuals though? How can individuals stand in their own power and serve as a leader? Well, I mean, I think that everybody, I think the biggest thing, and, and this is one thing I, I've always struck by on our teams is um, I think that it's a shame if you have a good idea and you don't share it. Um, and I think that your everybody brings such a unique perspective and you can lead by influence in so many creative ways. Um, and I bet that there you have ideas that nobody else has thought of. So I think championing good ideas is awesome and you need to speak up about them. Um, but then taking steps of responsibility along the way for those ideas and not just putting those ideas on someone else, but actually saying, well, what's something that I can do to further the idea or to support it or help develop it? Um, and just start putting on you know, projects or taking on some things that can help develop skills because then you meet people and form collaborations that grow and grow and grow over time. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that it all starts with, I think, sharing good ideas mm. um, and speaking up. I mean, some there's one uh, person within our group I'm, I'm thinking of recently who I would have never thought to ask to do anything more because she's contributed so much, especially this last year through COVID. I mean, I would never think to ask more of her. And she came and she said, you know, because I've done so much this year, I think I'm ready to do more. She's like, I actually would like to do some research. Do you think I could publish an article? And I'm like, yes, I would have never thought that would be something on her radar. But the fact that she's I was like, thanks for asking, because there's a lot of articles that we need written and like are prime for writing, like go for it. So I think some of it is just saying your interests and good ideas and letting people know because mm -hmm. there's so much influence that people can bring. Mm -hmm. And that's leadership. Absolutely. I think the three of us all share the belief that people have a personal responsibility for continuing professional development. What are your thoughts on that? A hundred percent. I mean, I think similarly to, um, you know, how our field's grown. I mean, no one's going to, no one's going to beg you to be at the table, right? You know, I just think that that's not how things work. Like no one's going to have the perfectly formed job. So you like, you're not going to be a leader until someone gives you a job title or something. I think that it's important to 
um, just great because you're learning for everything. Every project you learn something from, and even if it doesn't work out, then that's, you probably learn the most from those. <laughs> um, but I do, I think that that initiative is so critical. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you sit still. I'm sorry. Connie, what other questions do you have for Kat? Well, I mean, I think that you, you know, you were just talking about this interesting part about um, our role as leaders. Um, and um, you may have seen something that um, Patrick Coyne and I wrote with an interdisciplinary team about um, as a palliative care team, we want all of our other team members to be able to rise up as well in that leadership, right? And so what is it that um, excites them? Is it writing an article? Is it serving on a committee? Is it being a liaison? Is it doing policy work? Is it, you know, writing a database? Um, and, and that um, it's not only about us, right? And so that that leadership gets distributed, I think is so important. And then I think the other part is that, um, you know, uh, there is so much interest for me as I think about it, and I'd be curious what you have to say about this cat of, um, there's been a lot of discussion about what may have been what leadership felt like for people who were kind of more pioneers in the field and trying to get this established. Um, and then, you know, where we are now, and then mixed that with this um, multi-generational workforce and, you know, what does that look like? Um, and I think that that's been a challenge um, because as I was sort of mentioning before, um, I have found that for some of my younger colleagues, um, you know, if they've just grown up on technology, um, their whole learning has been so different and that interpersonal part for them, that's their learning curve. I mean, for them to even talk to patients is terrifying, right? Yeah. Um, I think of like my own daughter, sometimes we're like, oh, mom, if I talk to her, I'm gonna die. I'm like, no, no, you won't die. I know that people don't die from communication. That's true. I know that to be true, but um, that's, you know, really a learning point for them. So then working with a team, but then the next part is when they're stepping into leadership. Um, it's a very interesting part because I think maybe with the pandemic too, it's made us think about work styles, right? But there's still a lot of communication that has to happen. And what is it? happen? What does it look like when it's on Zoom? And how do we all feel about that versus the amount that we need to be in person? You know, so you, you're balancing not only the evolution of the field, these different generations, and then these different needs. And so when you think about your role in leading and helping other people to be leaders, you know, what about that kind of rings true for you? Well, it's funny that you say that because it was going through my mind when you said that was, um, it, it's interesting now when people come onto our team now, and we have about 90 FTEs in our health system for palliative. Wow. And so we have a, a lar much larger team. We started off with like, well, zero, because we weren't even officially hired. But when we started our department, there were four of us. And the nurse practitioner was our first um, hire. And there was nurse practitioner, physician, pharmacist, social worker. Um, so from four to 90, um, it the, the group that joined initially, and we still have many of them still on our teams, there's a grassroots effort, like con palliative conquering our health system mentality is much different than the people that come on now that see now we have the like, corporate structure, we've got an orientation plan. So the people that didn't have that are like, I figured out myself, you can figure it out. But then it's like, but we're so big, we should be organized about this um, at the price of maybe having a little more bureaucracy. So it's interesting because we started so much and much like the field of palliative, right? We started with 
you know, I think back to the earlier HPM conferences, which, you know, and I even came in midstream because there was a whole generation before I was involved, but, you know, it went from like a much grassroots type of feeling to now being kind of like these big corporate events. Um, and it, there is a little bit of a different feel for that, but then you wonder like, is this the sign of success that we are now corporatized? Like, um, so for our teams, I wonder about that too. We struggle with like how much of it gets standardized and there's consistency and people have to do things the same way versus adjusting to like generationally differences and people's, you know, place on our team's difference, um, preference on all the preferences that palliative passionate palliative people have, <laughs> um, you know, to kind of get aligned and move as a force together. And there's a lot of strength in that. Um, but we also want to make sure that we're respecting a lot of different perspectives. There were, there's a lot of value there and having everybody wrestle with our differences and bring different things to the table. So I don't know. I was thinking about that, as you said, that is just the, the transition from a grassroots effort to more of like a, you know, a big, machine. <laughs> and well, but I would say, I think of it as a, but it's also quality, right? Like that's why we started writing the NCP guidelines so that we were sort of saying, when I say palliative, you say palliative, we have some structure. I think the other part is, um, you know, it, it also speaks to, you know, you have to think about at different times, what's your leadership and all of us have to think of our leadership style and we'll want the students to be thinking about what their leadership style is. But the third part, I'll just say as a clinician, you know, I went and made a transition from an academic medical center, which I started the program. And I went to a community hospital with some fellows that I trained. Now I'm an expert in palliative care. And, you know, I, I walked on, but I had no orientation. And I have to tell you, I can do the work, but coming into a new culture, trying to like even just know what's the phone number of the pharmacist? What's the best pharmacist for me to call when I'm trying to talk through some of this? What are the phone numbers of the units? What's the translator? I mean, it took me three months of, of you know, following the team to take notes. I made an orientation for myself and I kind of would say, how did you think I would know that? Oh, well, we figured you'd figure it out. And it was not an effective way for me to right. join that team, right? Um, I love them dearly and we joke about it because they were like, oh, we just figured you were being detailed oriented. And I was thinking, well, if anybody comes along after me, you know, I, I want them to be able to have a more of a strength. So it's an interesting part about, um, you know, is that a part of like pull up your bootstraps we all had it hard and you're going to have to do it or do we kind of think about it of saying let's make sure that we're using everybody's time effectively and if we can give everybody the tools that they need up front and and start that way that's great and then they might be able to give us feedback that you know what works and what doesn't work right I mean because yeah. you also spoke about orientation and I think you know that's a really important thing about leadership of understanding the culture of your team. I can say that, you know, one of my early teams, um, really great team, but everybody was really um, pretty high achieving. And I would say it was probably hard for us to have some learners sometimes because we were in this fast mode all the time that we weren't able to kind of go back to that learner's mentality a bit. Yeah. Um, but I also think that, you know, when you do, you also spoke really well about, um, really giving people the possibility of practicing to the scope of practice with that transdisciplinary model. And I love that because I think when we put our disciplines in their boxes of what they can and cannot do, 
it really limits the team. And I think I've had some social workers who do better pain assessments than some of our clinicians yeah. um, or the like, you know? So I think you've, you know, you've talked about looking at your team as people and what's their potential and understanding that different people at different times may be able to take on or want to take on more. And then there might be people who are just happy to be part of the team and where they're at in life or, just um, emotionally or whatever, you know, that's what, that's what they'll contribute. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard Kat say a thousand times, I want to make sure all my people are practicing at the top of their license. Well, I've changed that recently. Oh, so, so now um, one of my colleagues corrected me. And so now I've, I've learned my lesson. This was maybe a couple months ago. And they said, yeah, we don't say that anymore. And I go, oh gosh, what do I, um, you know, we're always learning new language preferences. I was like, oh gosh, like what's, what's the new trend? They said, no, now it's um, top of experience. So they said, just because you're at the top of your, your license might say you can do this, but your experience would say you shouldn't do that. So, um, I, so now it's practicing to the top. I know, so now I catch myself cause I'll go top of experience. So I was like, oh, I like that. That's probably true. Cause he says, you know, a lot of people have a lot of experience and you can do a lot more than if you don't. So I'm like, okay, I guess I'll buy that. But really, it's, it's top of their license. But we don't want anybody going to jail, but we want to bring their A game, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, interesting. I think, um, um, and you know, that we we do have to keep on top of the language because I was going to say that um, uh, the, in May, because of um, Nurses Week, um, the National Academy of Medicine put out the future of nursing, charting a pathway to health equity. And they very much have to think about licensure of what's the different levels of nurses and licensure. Mm -hmm. And, um, but that's also because of the audience. So, you know, I think we also have to know um, which, which disciplines sometimes are under more scrutiny than others. Yeah. What I would say as a, you know, for pharmacists for in our field, um, you know, we're at a really interesting time because I feel like we are, have become a more popular commodity but I would say um, we are still considered really a nice to have and not a need to have. Um, and I think that there's a lot of advocacy that can and should and will be done to really help um, demonstrate value, much like other non-billable team members. Um, but I think that there's a lot of work to be done there. And in our health system, I think we've been able to do it, but it's not easy. There's no magic formula. Um, I wish there was, um, our society for palliative pain and palliative care pharmacists are always like, what are the metrics that we need to measure? And I'm like, it depends. It's, it's in my experience, I'm like, I have 10 different hospitals and there's 10 different arguments that are made every time because they all have different pain points. Um, but I think our field's very similar because there's, you know, I remember talking to Dr. Diane Meyer at the CAPSI saying, what do pharmacists need to do to be at the table? And she's like, define yourselves. Like we don't even know where we don't even know what palliative care pharmacist when we see one. Do you all need to do residency training? There's no board certification. Um, you know, hospice pharmacists might have different requirements than an inpatient palliative care pharmacist. So I think as our for our field, we have a lot of work to do there. So hopefully all your PhD students can help us figure that out. Go get some good data around this. <laughs> but you know, I think though, and, and I mean, you know, both of you would be the people that I would ask now, but I mean, when I started off in hospice and I had my pharmacist that I used every day, I mean, I would call them up all the time to say, I'm trying to think through this, you know, what do we have available? What's going to be that? I mean, I wouldn't have made recommendations really without talking to them. Right. And then, 
when I went to, um, and so that was in hospital hospice and then home health. And I started a palliative care program out of a home health program at one point. And then I think what happened, you know, when I was at Mass General is we had a pharmacist who sort of self-selected to be our liaison and she was excellent in sending us all these articles. And so, I mean, I also kind of, she would say, you know, here, when I'm on, you know, you can do this and, and would tell me who I should talk to because I think one of my challenge with pharmacy at some point is if I'd call and it wasn't somebody who was, um, well-versed in palliative care, they would cite me literature that was very different, right? And then I would have to be like, okay, what are the, what are the buzzwords that I need to use right now that you know, I can learn and sort of think of what um, the pharmacists who we're working with would tell me to say right now so that I could kind of break through some of that resistance. Um, and, and so I think that if anybody's experienced having a pharmacist that works alongside them, it is such a gift, right? Of even, you know, Lynn has talked about this of, you know, the online pain calculators. I was kind of chuckling because I've never used them. I would rather do my own calculation and then call up a pharmacist or somebody else and say, hey, I'm doing this dosing. It's really serious. It's methadone or, you know, fentanyl, whatever. Talk me through and let's see where we come from because I want that personal connection. Yeah. Right? Did you forget to include a variable that would right. impact their thing? Absolutely. Or, and you know, what's their dose reduction or what are they thinking? And what do we even have on formulary, right? Am I making up something that they're going to call me in two hours and say, Connie, we're out of this. You're going to have to do this. Right. Um, and so I just don't think a lot of people have had that experience of that expertise. And so I think you're Diane's right of, you know, how are you, as a field of pharmacy, showing your value and your identity of um, how do we foster good outcomes, right? It's not, you know this, I mean, it's not only gonna be about the monetary part, but what are the, the outcomes, the bad outcomes that are avoided um, right. because of that. And, and I know also both of you are into de-prescribing, de so I know that's a whole other part. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that that's, you know, all of our disciplines are having to kind of do that. And, and even though we're saying we're transdisciplinary and we need all the disciplines, I think people forget, which is why we have these um, primary palliative care programs that maybe only have one or two disciplines and they're a great start and we need them. And I think, you know, how do we push forward? Yeah. Um, so you've raised some really neat points. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a spectrum um, for the viewpoints on this. And I think this is where there's like, it's a challenge to get aligned because there's purists. I would say I'm probably more in the purist camp, I guess, and saying that like, you wouldn't throw an untrained pharmacist in the ICU and expect them to round on their patients and know what drip rates are. And palliative care pharmacists can do more harm than good without good training. So we're talking about the most complex patients in our health system with the most high risk meds. And we're having people weigh in on things with organ systems failing, lab values all over the place, drug interactions. Um, it's not, you know, this is not easy. This is, and I think sometimes people think like, oh, you know, palliative care, hold their hand, give a little morphine, like, no. Um, so you're always talking about that. Then there's other, you know, people that are like, oh, well just, you know, a pharmacist, any old pharmacist is better than no pharmacist. But I also, I think there could be harm done there. So, so it'll be interesting to see where our field goes. I don't know, stay tuned, but, um, but it is hard. We, there's not enough of us yet, but, 
we're hoping to fix that, right, Dr. McPherson? Absolutely. We're turning them out as fast as we can. Right. Well, I think the one last thing I would say, though, is it is it is going to be interesting to think what happens in pharmacy in particular as we try to recognize quality and mm -hmm. we're looking at program certification and discipline certification, whether it's by exam or by competencies. It, it will be interesting for me to watch what pharmacy does, because I think there's going to be some sort of philosophical part um, that you're going to have to think about of people saying, so how do you show the public that you've had this specialty training that they will quickly be able to recognize? Um, and that, I mean, we're going to have to do that in palliative care overall, but I just think, you know, when you look at the disciplines and moving towards certification, if programs can't afford program certification, which is a big investment, um, and, but they're gonna show insurance companies percentage of who's certified on the team. That's you know just some place to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Walker. Any last comments as we wrap up? Any last thoughts? No, I mean, I think that, that I'm, I'm so jealous of all of your students learning from the best of the best. So I can't wait to like see all the other podcasts that are done and Hopefully this one was helpful and gave some good pearls. Absolutely. Last words from you before we wrap up. I think thank you for your wide range of thoughts and your really um, role modeling leadership um, as it's occurring and thinking of all the current issues um, and for all that you've done. I mean, I think that that's showing our students, you know, what you can do with time and um, thinking of the possibilities. And I think that you are really showing that. And I look forward to seeing more of what you're doing in the future. Thanks. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD and graduate certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.